Hey, my name is Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's message. Uh, I hope that it's encouraging to you and inspiring to you. I hope that it causes you to dive deeper into the scriptures. And I hope that you're able to do that with some people around you, with some community. Um, but if you don't have that, we would love to invite you into the community here at Restore. If you want to take a next step, get more connected, you can just go to restoreaustin.org slash connect, fill out a card on there, and I will personally reach out to you in the days after you do that. And if you want to grab coffee with me or just get more information about the church, I will make myself available to you for that. As you will hear, we are in this thing called a year around the table, and it really comes from this vision that God's given us that Restore would be a place where anyone has a seat at the table and everyone experiences the extravagant love of Jesus. So A, I hope that you experience the extravagant love of Jesus as you check this message out. And B, if you don't have a table to sit at, we want to invite you to Jesus' table here at Restore. Good morning. I'm not Zach. So just like be prepared. I'm not Zach. I'm CG. I'm the connections pastor here. Um, so do connections team, the community partnership, stuff like walk with me, the video we saw a little bit earlier. I'm going to pray and then we're going to do this thing. All right. God, thank you so much for, for this space. Just be with us. Calm all the distractions and the noise and all the things that we came into this room with and help us to hear from you. Amen. When I began working at a homeless services provider in D.C. several years ago, I often joked about how that year was the year of humility for me. And if I'm being honest, I joked about it to deflect from how blisteringly true that really was. Uh, for those of you who don't know, I was a chef in my past life. My degree is in baking and pastry, and I've worked at all sorts of places doing all sorts of things over the years. Worked at wholesale pastry shops, making thousands of pastries at a time, wedding cake decorating, as a pastry chef at a restaurant, as an executive chef, as a consultant, and also at this homeless services provider in D.C., a place that most people would know as a soup kitchen. My inner chef can't continue on without at least explaining. Um, we made the highest quality meals from scratch. Uh, we just didn't charge for them. Um, <laughs> but if there's anything that reality TV has taught us is that chefs have egos. I tried to fight against the stereotypes about chefs to be kind, thoughtful, and gracious. But at the end of the day, when a person works in an industry that ingrains the idea that there are three answers, yes chef, no chef, or I don't know chef, a person gets awfully used to having her directives followed, as stated, not necessarily no questions asked, but only clarifying questions asked. Not so much with this new gig. I was leading a rotating team of volunteers to cook and serve food while dealing with these like massive fluctuations in the ingredients we would get donated to us. I went from expecting a yes chef when I gave an instruction to overt questioning of my decision-making abilities and the breadth of my experience multiple times a day, every day. As I said, it was humbling. But I will never forget, though, the most humbling experience of my life happened while working there one day, but in the most unexpected way. The guests we served were primarily people experiencing chronic homelessness. So by definition, these are folks who haven't had a place to live for three or more years. To say that our guests were in a bad way is the understatement of the year. There was one guest that I was particularly fond of. I'm going to call him Michael. 
By the time I met him, Michael hadn't had a place to live in over a decade. He had experienced some significant traumas in his life that made him unable to recall enough details to get the paperwork he needed to apply for housing, even though he qualified. It was a heartbreaking story. But when I think of Michael, I think of sheer joy. Oh, he always seemed to have a smile on his face, and he would come and stand in the doorway of the kitchen and wave at me until I came over to say hi. He was forever dragging me out of the kitchen to show me his latest project he was working on in art therapy, to show off his latest creation. He was relentlessly patient and kind, even when people were unkind to him. In the three years I worked there, I cannot remember a single instance of Michael showing he was struggling at all. But one day, Michael came over to the kitchen door as normal, but with an extra big smile on his face. He tells me he has something for me. Follow him. I assumed he was going to give me one of his art therapy projects or just tell me something, and instead, he reaches into his backpack and pulls out a vase. He hands me the vase and tells me that he got it for me, that he wanted me to have something beautiful because I deserved to have something that made me smile. Here's a man who had the entirety of his possessions in one shopping cart, who went out of his way to get something for me because he thought I needed it. My day needed to be brand. I wish, I wish this was not the case. But up until that point, I had unwittingly fallen into the trap of assuming that I was doing all the good in the situation. I was the one helping others. I was the one up on my high horse, changing the world one meal at a time. I didn't allow for the possibility that I could learn from our guests, that there was such a wealth of experiences walking into the room each and every day. I didn't see the guests for all they were as complex, multifaceted human beings, each one representing God to the world in their own way. And as much as this horrifies me to say, the brutal truth is that I thought I was better than them. Until that moment that Michael handed me the vase, and it shattered everything I assumed to be true. I had been going through a tough time in my personal life, which I thought I had kept well hidden. But Michael saw my pain. He saw me. And he knew he could do something to make my life better, so he did. Because as it turns out, I was the one who needed help. Talk about humbling. And I'm guessing this isn't just me, either. I'm guessing we've all had our own experiences of making assumptions about other people, assuming we are better, somehow. I'm guessing that we haven't put ourselves in the other person's shoes, been willing to hear their stories, or made an effort to understand their life experiences. How many of us have assumed that we are more hardworking than the person asking for change at the corner? How many of us have believed we're smarter than the immigrant who speaks broken English? How many of us have given the side-eye to the person experiencing homelessness muttering to himself and assume we are more mentally well-adjusted than he is? How many of us have looked down on someone having a trauma response because they can't keep it together like everybody else? How many of us have complained about the tents around Austin while driving in our air-conditioned cars to our furnished homes? We've all done some version of this trap that I fell into. 
We unconsciously assume that we are blank than some other person or group. Better than. Smarter than. More deserving than. More capable than. More sober than. The list goes on. We use these assumptions to keep a comfortable distance from the problems that others are facing. We naturally want to tell ourselves that we're part of the solution for the inequality we see. But are we? In the last four weeks, we've been in the God of Justice series. We've looked at Moses and how God demonstrated justice in the Old Testament. Ivor gave a great sermon on Jesus interacting with the woman at the well. And Zach talked last week about Jesus pursuing justice for the marginalized and what he actually taught about it. This morning, we're bringing the series to a close by looking at how the early church put Jesus' words into actions and practice in their lives. We have this amazing example of people who didn't experience Jesus themselves, but still chose to follow him anyway based on what people who experienced him told them. We're going to be reading from James 2 today, so if you have your Bible or an app or whatever, feel free to turn there, otherwise the verses will be on the screen. I'm going to blow everyone's minds here for a second. The book of James is written none other than by a guy named James. I know. Who would have thought? <laughs> I know. Like, are we, can we, like, come back? Are we, we're good? Okay. What you may not know is that James is Jesus' brother. Um, at least that's what some number of scholars go with. It's largely assumed that James is the next oldest son after Jesus. He's also pretty fiery. Uh, which is what I enjoy about him. He's not afraid to dig into tough issues. This letter that he wrote was to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. So basically, these are people who grew up Jewish, converted to Christianity, and are no longer in Israel. Why were they no longer in Israel? Well, things had gotten pretty bad in Israel under Roman rule, and it wasn't pretty, especially for Christians. Most of the people likely fled because they were afraid for their lives. I don't know if any of you have ever had to suddenly leave the only country you've ever lived in to move to a new place because you feared for your life. I'm guessing most of us in this room haven't. But for anyone who has, it's not exactly a calm and blissful experience. It's a lot of hastily packed bags, figuring out what's important enough to bring along and what gets left behind. Once a person finally arrives at the new destination, they have to figure out everything in the new country. The language, the money, the legal system, the layout, the traditions, everything. And these are the folks that James is talking to. They've been through it. Their lives have not been easy. And yet, James still has to remind these folks of some very basic truths. How the dangers of favoritism color our ability to love and treat people well how easily apathy towards another person's plight can creep in. And best of all, he tells us what to do about it. Starting in verse 1. My brothers and sisters, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. We're going to come back to the favoritism thing in a second, so remember it. In verse 2. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, mm, you stand over there, mm, sit at the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with bad intentions? The people that James was writing to had very clear understandings of power structures within society. Certain people deserved to sit 
and other people deserved to have to stand. If a person had wealth or status or certain religious affiliations or connections, then they were often treated better. If a person didn't have those things, they were often relegated to the fringes. But it's not like we understand that in our culture today, right? How could we possibly relate to such an idea? We would never assume that a person carries a certain amount of clout because of the labels on their clothes or the car that they drive or the letters behind their name or their job title or anything like that, right? No, 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 of course not. But here's where the favoritism comes back in. Look again at that part in verse 4. Haven't you discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with bad intentions? This is what favoritism is. It is judging with bad intentions. I don't think any one of us would contend that favoritism is a good thing. At best, it's misguided. At its worst, it's destructive and divisive. If we're being honest, though, the idea of favoritism is kind of easy to brush off. Even the example given in this passage is like such a blatant thing. It's like, oh, of course. Like, we're not going to do that. It's easy to tell ourselves that favoritism is what someone else does or it doesn't happen that often or we would call it out when we see it. But favoritism is much more insidious than that. It doesn't walk into the room holding a sign letting us know it's arrived. It creeps in and then it lurks until it takes hold. And the thing is, favoritism is just the blanket word that encompasses the other isms and phobias. Sexism, racism, ageism, ableism, classism, homophobia, xenophobia, every single one of these and other types of discrimination boil down to this. They are all forms of favoritism. And James does not mince words when he says that favoritism is judging with bad intentions. Yikes. Picking up in verse 5. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Isn't it the rich who are exploiting you? Aren't they the ones dragging you into court? Aren't they the ones who are blaspheming the noble name to whom you belong? In case we missed the point with this example a few verses before, James makes it very clear that they have dishonored the poor. And the poor in this text can easily be substituted with the marginalized, the ones who are looked down on, whether implicitly or explicitly, the ones that receive the short straw when it comes to the isms. And despite all of this, there's an easy solution found in verse 8. But if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture... Love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing right. So incredibly simple, this directive to counteract favoritism. Love your neighbor as yourself. And yet, it takes effort. It takes mindfulness. It takes a willingness to look outside of ourselves. If you're familiar with Jesus' teachings, you'll see the emphasis on love woven throughout. It's a core message that he had. The law that James is referencing is based on what Jesus said when asked what the most important things are. Love God and love others. Love is key. Now the next few verses go to some specifics about the law that culturally pertained to the people at the time. They're definitely worth a read, but for now we're going to skip to verse 14, uh, which is the next part about how we treat people. So in verse 14, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, If someone claims to have faith but has no deeds, 
Can such a faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes or daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, and be well fed, and does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. This seems like another one of those obvious examples in the text. Of course, saying to someone without clothes or food that they should go and be warm and well-fed is arrogant and cruel. I don't think anyone sitting here would have the audacity to be so bracingly uncaring. However, in the face of the clear needs, silence in this matter is essentially the same. If you hear of someone's pains, of someone's wounds, someone's struggle and do nothing, isn't it saying the same thing? Isn't the underlying message here that they are supposed to figure it out on their own? That their situation doesn't impact you at all? That you wouldn't be in their shoes? So what then? We're supposed to love people and do something, right? Despite what we were taught as kids, the opposite of love is not hate. It's apathy. James is ready to warn the early church against becoming apathetic to others, and the same message holds true today. So then the question becomes, how do we counter apathy? How do we avoid favoritism and the other isms from creeping in? Paul, the person who wrote a bunch of letters to the first century churches that are found in the Bible, writes in his first letter to the church of Corinth in verse 12, sorry, chapter 12, verses 26 and 27. He says, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part shares in its joy. You are the body of Christ. Each one of you is part of it. Essentially, he is saying that favoritism and apathy can't take hold when we recognize that we are all connected, that we're all in this together. In other words, there is no them. There's only us. And this means being really honest with ourselves and with each other when we are hurting and when we have participated in the hurt. It's being willing to share our experiences and listen to a person explain the wounds they've received without brushing it off. It means saying that we need help and it's understanding that we've been the person who has helped create the need to begin with. It means learning from those we've looked down on before, accepting gifts simply because they bring beauty and life into the world, humbling ourselves to admit when we've done wrong by someone else. We are bound together by this bond of humanity, by this bond of love. Only in, in recognizing how we are connected can we make headway against the isms that we see prevalent today. It is in being brave enough to let our hearts break that prevents apathy from taking root. It is vulnerable, but it is truly what it means to be one body. Because when one of us doesn't have enough food, we are hungry. When one of us shorts a worker their wages, we profit. When one of us has experienced abuse, we have trauma. When one of us has been discriminated against, we lose a piece of our humanity. When one of us discriminates, we fail to recognize the Imago Dei, God in each one of us. When one of us mourns, we have a broken heart. When one of us laughs, 
we are uplifted. When one of us helps carry another person's burdens, we have a lighter load. When one of us encourages another, we have hope. And when one of us takes the time to listen, we are showing Jesus' love to the world. There is no them. There is only us. Now, I love this quote from Eugene Cho in his book, Overrated. Are we more in love with the idea of changing the world than actually changing it? It's a long one, so stick with me. It's easy for us, perhaps more so with our individualistic Western mindset, to forget that relationships matter. Acknowledging and hearing someone's story matters. We have to be particularly careful, locally, globally, and perhaps within our own communities, how we engage those we serve. We have to constantly remember that they too are created in the image of God. Someone I am less likely to consider helpless and in need of saving. Someone to come alongside of. Someone full of potential. Someone God created. Someone with a story. Someone who might be able to teach me. This is the importance of dignity, mutuality, and reciprocity. Or in more simple terms, we acknowledge their human worth and beauty. We have things to both learn from and teach one another and we are in relationship with one another. Be careful. Be wise. Be human. When you start dehumanizing the poor, you have no desire to build relationships with them. You have no interest in their stories. You have no interest in relationships. You believe stereotypes that others have told you about them. You believe the lie that they have nothing to teach us and are incapable of contributing to the larger society. When you're not interested in building genuine mutual relationships, you rob people of their dignity and they become projects. Don't reduce people to projects. When that happens, they become statistics instead of people. How can you love and serve the poor if you don't even know the poor? We are connected. We are one body. We all represent God in our beautiful, messy human way. There are bonds between us that cannot be broken. Our actions affect other people. There is no them. There's only us. Okay, great, CJ. We get it. There's only us. So what do we do about it? That's a wonderful question. I'm glad you asked. Fight apathy by being willing to let yourself feel the pain. Listen to what the divine presence inside of you, the Holy Spirit, has to say about this person in front of you. Risk allowing your heart to break. Learn to recognize your implicit biases, your favoritism, your assumptions, and question how that is potentially harming another person, harming our collective body, harming humanity. Keep your heart tender. Tender hearts change everything. They make unexpected friends. They become passionate. They hear stories. They volunteer. They give. They teach kindness. They demonstrate compassion. They give other souls the space to breathe and to rest and to simply be. This is the example that Michael gave me the day that he gifted me with this face. He recognized my humanity and did what he could to make a difference. His heart was tender not just to me, but to everyone he came in touch with. And here's the thing. 
All of you sitting here today get to benefit from his kindness and generosity. You get to catch a glimpse of the beauty that his soul brings to the world. And you and I wouldn't have a clue if he had seen my struggle and decided to be apathetic toward it. We would have never known the difference if he had made assumptions about me and what I deserved. Instead, we have this very real example of what life looks like when we have tender hearts. This is the way being connected works. We all benefit from love. It is only by being willing to take this first step, the risk of letting our heart feel another's pain, that we can change how we see the world. And then we can change the part of the world that we touch. As the Christian mystic Richard Rohr says, we do not think ourselves into new ways of living. We live ourselves into new ways of thinking. Let's live our, ourselves into a new way of thinking. Let's live as though we are connected, that we are one body, that we are actually an us. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this amazing opportunity that you extend to us to recognize the connection, to recognize the hope that you give us. Please help keep our hearts tender and to hear what our next steps are. In your name, amen.